Well, good afternoon. Today is a day that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Up until this point, we've been preaching through our core values, which has been a, a lot of fun, but uh, I've missed just the opportunity to take a book of the Bible and to work through it verse by verse by verse. And so we are beginning that. We are starting with the book of Philippians. I'll tell you, I chose this partly because it, it speaks to people in a variety of places of life. Uh, it also, in a very short amount of text, speaks to very many of the Christian doctrines, gives hopes to those who are feeling broken, it gives direction to those who are drifting, it, it gives focus to those who desire to follow Christ more closely. And if I'm honest, the other reason that I chose this book is I just absolutely love it. God brought me to faith in Him during my teenage years, or later in my teenage years, and and so I actually have the memory of the first time I ever read Philippians. I remember the first time I ever got to experience that. To be honest, it was one of the few things that ever made me cry. Because I, I read this as a young believer, and I wanted faith like Paul. I wanted purpose like Paul. And the reality was I was experiencing a joy that was only tied to my circumstances. Joy that, almost like a giant dog on a leash, I just couldn't hold on to no matter how hard I try. And so Philippians reminds us that there is no real joy outside of Christ. And that's okay because we don't have to live our lives outside of Christ. Bottom line is Philippians speaks to the church and it points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Philippians. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he sits in a prison in the city of Rome, uh, awaiting a trial that's going to determine whether he's going to be set free or whether he's going to be punished, maybe even put to death. Uh, we call Philippians a book. The reality is it's a letter. For some of us, we might need a, a review session almost as to what a letter is. This is the way people communicated before text and email. And, and there was an actual formal way for doing this. There was a, an expectation of what was the, the layout or the structure of each and every letter. And each of them contained three things at the beginning. They began with, who is this letter to? Who is this letter from? And then a greeting. Very simple structure. One of the things we see about this letter, real quick, is that Paul changes each of these aspects up in a very small but significant way. First thing we see is that Paul doesn't just mention his and Timothy's name, but he also gives these qualifying descriptions of who they are. He says that they are servants of Jesus. This word servant here in the, in the Greek is really the term for slaves. He's stating this humble position that he is in. Uh, he's saying that we are slaves of Jesus Christ, and I think we struggle with this term slaves at times, and for good reason. The history of our country includes taking free men, women, and children, and forcing them into slavery. And so we really have a bad idea with this idea of slaves. And even in Paul's time, it's not like this was a good idea. So why in the world would Paul refer to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ? I think it helps to know that in this time, in the time that this letter was written, people became slaves in three ways. The first was through losing in a battle. Often when there was a war, those who were survivors were 
used as slaves from that point forward. Second way that people became slaves was by birth. Anyone born to a slave was automatically, at the moment of their birth, also a slave. And the third way was by debt. Many sold themselves or even their children into slavery to pay off a debt that was owed. The reality for us to remember is that we were all born slaves to sin. Psalm 51.5 speaks of our being born in iniquity. That's sin. Uh, Ephesians 2.3 tells us what we all know from experience, that we are by nature children of wrath. What Jesus does when he lays down his life on the cross is not just forgive our sin, which is a glorious and wonderful thing, but he also frees us from our enslavement to sin. He sets us free. I found it interesting, maybe you will too, the building that we're meeting in right now is located at 1000 Fremont Avenue. The word Fremont is actually a French word that means free man. I think it's fitting, it was just intriguing to me that here we are gathering here as those who were once slaves to sin, who have been set free by the cross of Christ on a street that's actually free men. So Jesus is now his master, that's what Paul's saying. That's the reason we call him Lord. Lord means master. But as our master, it's important that we remember that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that our master has shown great love for us. So great that he purchased our freedom for us at a cost that we could never pay. So as we work through Philippians, we're going to see that Paul is joyful. We're going to see that Paul is content We're going to see a believer who is satisfied in his master, who is Jesus Christ. And so with that, it's setting up all of this. Uh, Everything is set up in that one phrase even. Here we see that Paul understood his role very well. His point here is, is very clear. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I exist for him. The second structural aspect of this letter is who it's to. Again, Paul adds qualifiers to this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Uh, Unfortunately, the mainstream understanding of the word saints comes from a false understanding or a false teaching that's found within Roman Catholicism. This false view says that there are some people in the world, some Christians, who have an excessive amount of merit or, or righteousness. And so within Roman Catholicism, only these special few are given the title of saints. Saint Paul, Saint Augustine. St. Anne, who, if you remember, Luther prayed to in that time of need. St. Francis of Assisi. St. Basil. That was my favorite one. And so we get this idea of saints. The reality is that all who have been made children of God through faith in Christ, that is, everyone who is a Christian, is also a saint. Saint literally means the holy ones. And it carries this idea of being set apart. Set apart for a special purpose. And Paul's point is to be clear that that this letter is to all the Christians in the church at Philippi. Anyone who calls on the name of Christ for salvation. All who have been set apart as belonging to Christ. And all who look to him as their savior. And so Philippi was a city really not unlike Manhattan. It was transient, military. It had a large influence over the surrounding area because it was uh, what's called one of the leading cities. If you remember, Paul went on three missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts, and these are long journeys. Think years, not weeks like we tend to think. On part of his second missionary journey, as Paul is traveling, he goes to the city of Philippi, and he goes with this one purpose, to to plant a church, to preach the gospel, to establish a church. 
So one of the interesting things was Philippi was very different than most cities that Paul visited. Usually, you'd go in and go straight to the synagogue, but one of the things was very different here because this city of Philippi was made up of multiple religions. There was worship of Egyptian gods and emperor worship and just a variety of, of other religions besides Judaism, which is where he usually went. This isn't the easiest place to plant a church, and yet God does. And it's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Usually when Paul came to a new city, like I said, he would go straight to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel because these were the Jewish people. They, they knew the Old Testament well and he would point them that Christ is the Messiah and that was really the starting point for preaching the gospel. But in Philippi, he doesn't do that. Most believe this is because any city that wanted to establish a synagogue needed 10 Jewish men. Thought was, this is in Europe, it's a little different place. They didn't even have enough Jewish men to establish a synagogue. And so when Paul first goes there, he has to begin to think a little different. What he does is he goes outside the gates and he finds a group of women who are, are meeting and they're praying. So he goes there and begins to speak to them. And in Acts 16, 14, it tells us that God opened the heart of a woman named Lydia to believe the gospel. Lydia became the first convert of Christ on European soil. Afterwards, it says that she and her entire household were baptized. So then, the other thing that happens in the city is this, this gospel continues to go on in some of the stranger ways I've ever seen. When Paul and Silas are walking through the marketplace, they encounter a woman who is who's demon-possessed. And there are some men that are, are using her to make money as a diviner. One of the things that this demon-possessed woman begins to do is to shout out about Paul and Silas. These men are servants of the Most High. These men are servants of the Most High. And really, one of the stranger interactions in scriptures, we're told that Paul becomes not just annoyed, but greatly annoyed. It's just weird that annoyance would be the thing that really moves this. And so he turns, and in the name of Christ, he cast out the demon. Well, this is great news for the girl, right? It's not good news for Paul and Silas. They get thrown into jail as a result of ruining someone's business. I know that you hear this, and it just sounds insane, but... They get tossed in the jail because they've ruined someone's business. And so you can go read the entire story in Acts 16 this week if you get a chance. I'll leave it at this, though. Our, our sovereign God uses this bad turn of events to bring a prison guard to saving faith. That's a beautiful story. Take the time and go read that at some point this week. Uh, Acts 16. Uh, we don't hear about how the others came to faith. I hope in eternity we have the opportunity to really see the rest of this just fleshed out as we hear about uh, the rest of the gospel proclamation in the city of Philippi to establish that church. What we do know, though, is that God does indeed establish a church in Philippi as many come to faith. And so we're asking God to do the same thing with this church plant in this city and at this time. The last portion of verse 1 says that this letter is given to all the saints in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul has made clear that this letter is for everyone, for all the saints uh, but he's also careful to acknowledge the God-given model of church leadership. And so over the years, I've been amazed to see how many new ideas of church leadership have been devised in the world today. Uh, most churches planted in the last 10 years have a structure modeled after a business that has multiple councils where the pastor serves as a CEO who makes all the decisions all by himself. And it makes me sad, I'm not mad or angry, but it makes me sad because God has left little mystery in regards to what a simple church government should look like, and that is of elders and, and deacons. The term overseers you see in our text is just another term for the office of, of elder. Simply 
put, this is what these offices are. Elders are men called to care for the church's spiritual oversight with humble leadership, shepherding, and teaching. Deacons, the other office. Deacons are those who are called to care for the church's mercy and material needs with godly compassion for those they care for. Um, so at some point, I'm sure we will go into this in more, more detail. If you want to learn a little more about elders and deacons, certainly go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and there's a, a lot of information there you can read. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that Paul uses the normal structure of a letter writing, but he makes some variations. Uh, one of the things that really reminded me of as, as I was looking at this is something I learned from a group of believers from Nepal. These are refugees that now live in Kansas City, Kansas. And one of the things that was absolutely intriguing to me about their culture was that uh, in their culture, they would verbally greet each other, sort of like we say hello or how you doing or what's up. But they would do so with this word namaste. And it means roughly, I, I bow to you. And it's a sign of respect to the person that you're greeting. After, after someone came to believe the gospel, after they were Christians, they would change the way they actually would greet each other. And they would say, Jemise, which means victory in Christ. And so knowing Christ changed everything, even the way that they greeted each other. And so in verse 2 of our text, we see something very similar with Paul. There's a greeting that he's going to give, but it's not like the culture of the times greeting. He's changed it because of his faith in Christ. This Christ-centered change that he makes is this. After stating in a letter who it was from and who the letter is to, it was customary to use the word just greetings, which I don't even think of as a greeting. I would never say greetings to someone, but they would just say greetings. What Paul does with this is this nuanced change, and the Greek word for greetings is karen. And Paul's variation in, in spelling is very small, where karen becomes charis, tiny little change. That slight change, however, creates the Greek word that means grace. Paul then adds the customary Jewish greeting of peace. And we get this phrase that has become so well known to us. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. This greeting reminds me that the saints then and today that, that grace uh, that we have in Christ is a gift from God. And with that greeting, the tone of this entire book of Philippians is set. We're going to see what God's going to teach us in this book. We're going to see that contentment can be had because God graciously provides it in the gospel. We're going to see what it means to have joy and, and hope, even in the midst of suffering and struggle. We're going to see that God can give peace, even when the ground is shaking beneath our feet. So I want to do something a little strange today. Like I said, Philippians is a letter. It was written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And when they received it, the first thing the church would do is, is they'd gather together and they would listen as this letter was read. And as we're going through this, I think often we divide things down into such detail at times that sometimes we just miss the wider scope of something, particularly these letters in the New Testament that we're reading. And so uh, this afternoon, I, I want you to imagine, this is where you've got to play along with me, I want you to imagine that you're in the first century church in Philippi, and you've heard that we got this letter from the Apostles Paul, and so you've come to hear it. What I mean is we're going to read straight through it. And to be honest, I was a, a little hesitant about doing this. I talked to John a little about it, and, you know, honestly, my first thought was, uh, that's going to be a cop-out. That's going to look like a filler, like you didn't really prepare a sermon, you just decided to read the text. But the truth is, it, it didn't take too long before I just realized that the error in my thought. The Word of God is not filler. 
It, it's nourishment. It's life. It's way more important than anything I'm going to say to you. And so I want you to follow along in your Bibles if that helps. If not, if you don't have the same translation, then that's going to be confusing. Or if you just want to listen like someone would have listened in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, just listen as we read through this. So we've received the letters. It's a little cooler in here than they would have had probably. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with, with joy, because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and, and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others for goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affliction and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor, labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, but not those of, of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all. And he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died at the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. Finally, my brothers, we're only halfway through, but he says finally there. Just a little warning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcision on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize, the, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and, and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Cynthia to engage in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger." abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You get a little feeling of what it was like to be in that early church. We often talk about what it would be like to be a part of the early church. And they'd receive a letter and they'd read it and they'd reread it and they'd begin to, to look at the details of that. That's very much what we're going to do. We won't reread it, but we're going to do it in smaller sections as we begin to look at this and, and break down what is Paul saying here? What, is, what does he have for us as a church that we're looking to learn? You know, ultimately, this is God's word to us uh, that he has provided for his church. And, and so we're going to dig into that. I'm excited. I hope you are too.